unrivaled odds. This is South American Soccer Insights. comes to a close so too does much of the South American football calendar and so we look back on two continental champions being crowned over the last few weeks and do something of a whistle stop uh, tour around the region to wrap up the winners the losers players to watch out for and much more as ever I'm joined by uh, Simon Edwards Hi, hi. Good morning, good morning. Looking forward to all of this as we get to the to the to the final results in South America and look back at uh, interesting, pretty good couple of the final. So looking forward to going through everything uh, this week. And of course, also here is Don Robinson. Hey, uh, glad to be back and uh, discussing what was a pretty scintillating last few rounds of, of football in, in leagues across the continent. So yeah, lots for us to get into. So yeah, let's let's crack on and, and get down to it. Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge amount to get through this month, given that we are going to try and skip across most of the countries. But we will, of course, start with the big one, the Libertadores final that we previewed in the last episode. Um, Palmeiras coming up top, managing to win back-to-back Libertadores finals, the first team to be able to do that since Boca Juniors in 2001. Um, and we kind of said in the preview that it was a Libertadores final that was pretty tough to call. We were looking at two teams that we looked at being evenly matched, Palmeiras being a very difficult side to beat. Simon, you particularly kind of put your money down there with Palmeiras to say never, never ever count them out, despite maybe the bookies favouring Flamengo um, and you proved to be absolutely right. Yeah, I was I was happy to be proved right. I, I really admire uh, Palmeiras. Now look, they've got a lot of stars. They've got a great squad. It's not as if they're massive underdogs, but um, I think they played the game really, really well. Um, I was very impressed. Uh, they scored early. Uh, they really uh, set themselves out. You know, we were kind of speculating, would they sit back and try and defend and, and try and sn- sneak something at the end? But they, they went straight for it. Uh, they attacked Flamengo earlier. I think Flamengo were caught a little off guard. Rafael Vega scoring the opening with a, with a nice finish on the edge of the box. Um, and it was a really strong start from Palmeiras. And that gave them the impetus, gave them the confidence and kind of shook Flamengo a little bit as well. Flamengo are used to dominating games. They have an incredible attack. Their front four is, is, in, is incredible. So much talent, so much attacking talent. But I think Palmeiras landing that early blow um, gave them something to think about. It gave Palmeiras renewed confidence. Um, and I think the Gabriel Barbosa equaliser in the 72nd minute kind of came out of nowhere, despite Flamengo controlling possession from large spells of weeks, as we expected. Um, a great individual moment, perhaps a bit of a mistake on the goal from Weverton, leaving his near post open. And then Gabriel Barbosa shows all of his quality. And again, he's been quite quiet in the game. So him popping up and then... And then Davison, my good old Davison, what, what a character he is. <laughs> if, when people think about South American footballers and they think of the eccentricities, they think of someone like Davison who's throwing punches and doing all kinds of stuff we've seen over the years, and winding fans up, getting into the face of everybody, um, always makes things happen. And in this game, it was definitely for the, in the positive side of things, uh, dispossessing um, the, the Pereira, the, the, the Flamengo midfielder, who'd had a good game and it's unfortunate to kind of be be cast as the villain in this piece, but then Davison runs through and finishes nicely, and, and Palmeiras, for me, are, are deserved winners. 
So a game of two high-quality teams, an interesting game, I would say, um, and a game in which Palmeiras and the tactical approach came out on top. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tom, as we said, it was, it was going to be a, a tight final. Where do you think the game was won and lost in terms of the two teams coming in when you look back on that final? Yeah, I, th- I think Simon was spot on when he said about that initial really sort of proactive uh, approach that Palmeiras took. That was definitely maybe not something we were expecting. And and you could just see from the formation set up that uh, Ferreira got his tactics spot on straight away. It was kind of a a sort of a 3-4-2-1 when they were in possession, which gave them these 3v2 numerical superiority when they were bringing the ball out of defence. And it also meant that Flamengo's 4-4-2 just couldn't deal with the width that the Palmeiras had initially. And you could see that from the first goal. You know, they've got the three at the back there. Gomez, plenty of time just to pick that ball um, out to to Mike, the, the, the fullback who's gone on beyond Bruno Henrique. The, I think it was Dudu maybe who had p- pulled out Felipe Luiz out of position. And then, yeah, a lovely, lovely. I, I really like the cutback as well because he just kept his head up. He wasn't rushed. He, he knew exactly where Vega was going to arrive. And straight away, I think that, that just showed that sort of more attacking approach and also how they'd got the tactics set up really nicely. And then, you know, that was dream scenario for Palmeiras. They could go into their more defensive counter-attacking um, system, you know, drop deep, go man for man in midfield and, and really put pressure on everything. And they were, you know, they were disciplined, they were organised. They just had that cup now, which I think is why most of us thought they were going to be the favourites for this final. I think the only thing that I would slightly disagree with is that Flamengo did really come back at them, certainly at the start of the second half. And there were quite a lot of missed opportunities. Gabby Eagle had two or three that he should have done a lot better. David Luiz drew a really good save out of um, uh, Weberton as well. So I think at that point, they, they had to show their their defensive solidity. But, you know, if you look at the chances, I think Flamengo had maybe 10 more chances than, than Palmeiras, but they only had about two on target. Whereas I, th- I think it was about eight shots for Palmeiras and about five of them on target. So they were really efficient in the final third. Um, and that ultimately proved proved to be the difference as well as you know that tiny little error from well massive error but that tiny moment um for Davison to go in and and obviously we we can't not mention Davison's um other big contributions to the match (laughs) that that wonderful dive after a a tap on the back from from the referee I mean I know Patana's a big bloke and everything but um that was uh that was definitely one of the highlights as well so definitely Palmeiras deserved it and I think now the sort of the big question is sort of what what next for for Ferreira and and Palmeiras has he done everything he can is he going to stick around? I think that's going to be really interesting because he's clearly going to be in in demand, I, I would say, from a lot of clubs around the world. Yeah, I mean, we, we obviously saw with Jorge Jesus after doing a really good job with Flamengo, going back to Europe and getting another chance. You'd have thought Ferreira will, as you say, be in demand coach now. And as ever with South American soccer, we're talking about coaches and players that as soon as they do tend to highlight themselves in such a way they end up um, leaving Um, but it it is a good question to ask and and certainly when you're looking at the context of where do Palmeiras go from here as well I mean Simon all the way through you've kind of said that every year Libertadores comes around and Palmeiras that team that you kind of say yeah it's a difficult competition to predict hence why we've only had this one back-to-back winner since 2001 
you tend to have that policy of if in doubt, go with Almeida's, uh, which proved absolutely correct this year. Um, but do you think 2022 is a huge field of Brazilian clubs in there as well coming up? Um, will you be looking at the same thing and saying Palmeiras and, and Flamengo probably as two of the teams again to keep an eye out for? Yeah, they'll, they'll be in the conversation. Look, I think with Ferreira, one of the things that, that made him so successful was he was at the right Brazilian club for me to combine his tactical approach, his his at times cautious or at times you know, disciplined, strategic, you know, he wasn't going for a Flamengo in terms of let's get all our best players on the field together, get them knocking the ball about and then we'll probably win. He was much more cautious in his approach, much more selective in the moment. Uh, and I think that was well suited to Palmeiras and what they've shown us over the last five years in the Libertadores is, you know, they're a team for me always, whether he's playing or not, kind of built in the image of Felipe Melo. You know, a team that's very disciplined, a team that knows what they're doing. At times, tough tackling, they'll do, they'll do what they have to do. And I think Ferreira was the perfect managerial choice for them in terms of taking that aspect. And we've seen this, this season as well in the Libertadores. In the group stage, they really attacked at times. They scored some good, you know, a good number of goals. Even in the knockout stages, they had games where they, they kind of opened themselves up a little bit more. So I think, I think, there's, I think this Palmeiras team is better than last year's Palmeiras team, particularly the way they played the final. So I think that's encouraging. Uh, obviously, Ferreira, you know, it, he'll be hard to replace. Now, I think he was the right choice. And if they can be as selective, if Ferreira is to move on, then they may be able to continue this. Now, to say winning three in a row, it, it will be remarkable. Um, there are, as you say, so many good Brazilian teams. You know, if, if uh, River can continue to build, uh, if Boca can get their, get their stuff together, maybe they could be a contender again one day soon. Um, but there's obviously going to be a lot of strong teams. But I think Brazilian teams still have the thing to lose at this point, given the finances. And it's not only the quality they have, but they're actually using the quality they have now. Um, they're bringing back the likes of Pereira at a younger and younger age to who can contribute for 90 minutes. It's not just moments with these older players. It's not just the kids who are about waiting to leave to go to Europe. They've got players in their mid-20s who are internationals uh, we've seen now in Brazilian clubs. So a combination of the, the excellent recruitment, the massive improvement in tactical approach and the financial advantage, uh, it's definitely going to be, I think, the rest of the South American nations are going to be supporting whoever's playing Brazil in next year's Libertadores, which is going to be a, a fun narrative in itself. And I'm sure we'll see a massive Brazilian giant get beaten by a Venezuelan minnow or, or a team at altitude. So we'll definitely have our drama. But when it comes down to it, I do think we are likely to see at least one Brazilian club in the final again next year. Yes, yeah, certainly. They look increasingly daunting and you look at the lineup for next year. It's difficult to think otherwise. When we're talking about players leaving, Tom, we've mentioned him a couple of times uh, already in talk about the final. He got his goal, ended up as top goal scorer in the Copa Libertadores. Gabi Gol, 11 goals in the Libertadores. One of the standout individual players, just as he was a couple of years ago when Flamengo won the Libertadores. Still right at the peak of South American football. Had that spell in Europe at a younger age. It didn't work out. He came back has clearly proven himself as that top tier in South American football. Do you look at him as maybe one of those players after another relatively successful Libertadores campaign on an individual level, even if they came up short in the final Flamengo, as he's now ready to have that other test, a second go at Europe? 
That's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because we're obviously the, the focus is on Palmeiras. What are they going to do next? But Flamengo are a really interesting crossroads as well. And and like you said, Gabi Gol is the, the, the epitome of that crossroads really in terms of does he have another crack at Europe? Does he take a big money move somewhere else in the world? Or does he just say, you know what, I enjoy being the main man at Brazil's biggest club um, rather than just being you know, someone who is a good player at a sort of a, a mid-range European club, for for example, does he does he like having that status? And and to be fair, if he's getting in the Brazil squad more often than not, then maybe he'll think maybe I don't need the move. But it's it's going to be interesting because there's a number of players you could say at that club. You know, Dascaeta would be another one as well. Who you could say, is it time for him to try something new? Um, but you know, with pe- people like David Luiz coming in, they they are they're still strengthening as well, and and that is something maybe they think they've got a bit of unfinished business there, having lost the final in in you know very sort of narrow circumstances there as well. So it's it's hard to know. I think it will say a lot about his ambition as a footballer, um, and kind of whether he wants to really test himself or whether he just wants to be a big fish in a maybe a slightly smaller pond. I think as well, it's going to be interesting what this says about Brazilian football in terms of the fact that, yes, they've won three in a row, but none of the coaches have been Brazilian. Is that a sign of concern or is it a sign that they are, you know, looking further afield for ideas. I mean, I, I think maybe we'll maybe see the fruits of this influence on Brazilian coaches several years down the line. But I think that's another thing as well. If you've not got a European coach and you're a Brazilian club, are you actually going to win the Libertadores? Yeah, certainly. It's, it has been an interesting development in Brazilian football over recent years. And, and certainly the results seem to have been to the benefit of Brazilian football as well. They have started to look slightly wider afield to try and enhance their game um, just before we finish then with that uh, winning the Libertadores obviously going to send Palmeiras into the club World Cup Simon um, competition that they didn't look at anywhere near where they would have wanted to one year ago they'll be in there again this year you said that they're a better side this time round but do you think they, you, they could go into that competition and maybe do what's now increasingly the unthinkable in that the South American team could end up being Club World Cup winners. Yeah, I think that the thing is with the Club World Cup is the semi-final is the big game. You know, everyone dreams of the final going toe-to-toe with the Europeans, but so many clubs haven't had that that opportunity. It, losing that semi-final is, is, a huge, is a huge issue for South American clubs and it's not going to be easy. It never is. It won't be easy this time. Monterrey of Mexico or Al-Ali of, of Egypt, it's going to be a difficult semi-final. So I think Palmeiras needs to focus everything on that semi-final and I think the final's a bonus, really. Um, now, I, I think with their discipline, when we've seen South American teams win the, uh, the Club World Cup, it's been through tactical discipline, a little bit of luck, uh, organisation. So I think Palmeiras are well-suited to play in, as the underdog, as we saw them do in this final. They, they approached the Libertadores final as the underdogs, despite being a very, very strong team. They, you know, they understood that they weren't going to dominate for 90 minutes. They have to be tactical and careful and selective in, in how they approach it. So I think in terms of the final, I think they'll give themselves a good showing. I'm more concerned about the semi-final, where they potentially will have to be a bit more protagonists. You know, they're going to play a good side, but they're going to potentially be having to open themselves up a little bit more to try and get the goal to to win the game. So I think 
the final's a bonus, uh, and I think they'll do they'll do South America proud if they get there. But first of all, they have to overcome a, a tricky semi-final, which often we've seen South American sides talking and talking about playing Real Madrid or Liverpool, and then they don't even get there, and they come back, and it kind of brings a damper, uh, kind of rains on what was a, a really excellent season, and everyone's just thinking about the missed opportunity to go toe-to-toe, because Europeans may not understand, but this is a chance, the only chance South American clubs get to play a competitive game against the European side. Like, it just doesn't happen in any other, any other circumstance. So it's such a big deal for the club involved and for the continent as a whole as well. So it really is a huge, huge prize. But I think they first need to focus on that semi-final. I, I don't think they'll embarrass us as South American residents in the final. But if they've got to get through the semi-final first. So that, for me, is got to be the focus. Um, and, of course, as I said in the intro, there was another big, big final in South America at the same stadium in Montevideo uh, a week earlier that we still haven't got around to talking about, the Copa Sudamericana final. As we said in our preview episode to that, this one we felt that there probably was a slight favourite um, and we actually went with the team that ended up losing. Um, Atletico Paranaense defeating Red Bull Bragantino by one goal to nil. Um, Tom, I mean, we didn't sit here and say, put your money, put your house on uh, Red Bull Bragantino by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it was a final that eventually was was won by just a, a single goal. Uh, what did you make of uh, Atletico Paranaense's win? Yeah, I think it kind of, again, a bit like the Libertadores final, everything played into the game plan that Atletico Paranaense were, were hoping for. You know, they're, they're a solid, direct um defensive team in, in general but I think they had Bragantino's number really um, they really neutralised them fantastically well we'd seen in the league that they'd beaten them 2-0 earlier which was maybe a, a sign of things to come but yeah it's I think that just extra continental experience that that, that club has really made the difference you know Bragantino an exciting team filled with young players but maybe that that naivety that not having been in that situation, especially with a squad of young players um, in the end told for them because it was, you know, it, looking back at when you watch the highlights back, there, there weren't too many Bragantino chances to, to, to write home about. Cuejo had a good sort of corner that almost went in and had a nice curling shot after that. But then, you know, towards throughout the game, there's only a sort of handful of half chances you can really say. Um, so it's, I, th- I think it was, you know, Paranaense are well worth their win. And, you know, I was a bit surprised to see that on the, on the pinnacle odds that they were 2.680 to win against Bragantino's 3.140. So even though we all had Bragantino as, um, as favorites there, then this is one for the, one for the bookies to, to show that, they, you know, they, they know what they're talking about, albeit, you know, very tight odds that could have gone either way. Um, but it was a really good goal to win uh, the the final as well. Nikau with a, a very improvised sort of scissor kick, maybe not the most powerful um, effort, but um, yeah, really, really nice finish to, to, to get that win. And I think, you know, a lot of credit does have to go to this Pananense team who aren't going to be, you know, one that live long in the memory in terms of a, a beautiful footballing side, but they've got, resolute players and, and and they get the job done so yeah fair play to them and um, I think maybe 
something that we, you know we've we've all got to remember never to write off this side when it comes to the Sudamericana because they've they've proven us wrong on plenty of occasions before. Yeah, second Sudamericana title in just a few years for Atletico Paranaense. We'll now go into the 2022 Libertadores as one of the number of Brazilian clubs. But Simon, one of the players that we had to talk about when we were previewing the final, of course, as the danger man and one of the main reasons why perhaps we plumped for Red Bull Bragantino was our thought. Um, and in the end, I guess, Paranaense did no one else had been able to do throughout the knockout stages, and that was keep him quiet. Yeah, he, he barely touched the ball, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> I'm just looking now at the, some of the numbers and honestly, he made so few passes. Half of his passes were didn't find a, a teammate, um, didn't have the impact we hoped. Had a, two or three shots on goal. Um, but yeah, no, they, they kept Artur quiet. Um, Artur is definitely still one a player to watch. European clubs definitely uh, are looking at him and, and they have good reason to. But I think... Um, uh, yeah, Paranaense keeping him quiet, I think, was absolutely key. Uh, he'd been the difference in so many games for uh, for Bragantino. And to, to keep him quiet, uh, I think that was obviously a, a key part of the game plan before the game. Um, and they, they pulled it off. And I think that was a huge credit to, to Paranaense. Um, Artur didn't have the best game. When he got on the ball, he didn't have the impact we're used to seeing him have. He didn't, he didn't cover as much ground either. You know, he was kind of, pushed out to the to the right-hand side and didn't drift inside with as much impact as he usually has. So it was a little bit of an off day for Artur, but I think um, Paranaense deserve a lot of credit for kind of uh, contributing to that uh, that quiet game of Artur. And I think that was decisive in a very tight game. Nikal, obviously the man who popped up with the goal, had a really good game, uh, kind of the attacking creative midfielder on the other side of the this, this final, um, was the decisive player, whereas we thought Artur might be might be key and uh, yeah Paranaense did a good job on him and uh, I think Artur is still going to be a star in Europe for years to come but uh, not not this week not this month in, uh, in the Sudamericana final Ultimately I think yeah, the absence of Artur in the game was probably one of the big impacts on Red Bull Bragantino's failure to have an impact on the game um, but Tom when we, when we look at these two teams and, and particularly Atletico Paranaense we're looking at a semi-final in which Probably a lot of us were looking at that semi-final as well and fancying Peñarol, given their talents, getting the final. They've managed to kind of upset, in inverted commas, even though you know not massive upsets by any stretch of the imagination, but being slight underdogs, they managed to defend well, take their chances. How do you think that bodes for them going into the 2022 Libertadores? I've obviously been playing Libertadores football relatively recently, um, and now they're back in the big competition amongst a very, very strong lineup. But can you see them being a team that, with that kind of underdog tag against some of the other Brazilian clubs, could still cause some problems? Yeah, I think they're always going to be really tough to break down and they're not going to give anyone an, an easy game. It's They're the type of team that I think other, if you draw them in, in your group, you think, oh, we've got away with one a little bit here because we could have come up against, you know, Palmeiras, Flamengo, Mineiro. Um, so I think teams will be hoping to draw them, but I think that could be a little bit of a risky strategy because, yeah, Paranaense, they might not be the protagonist taking the game to you, but they can, they can certainly neutralize you, snuff out your chances and, and hit you because they don't have any stars in their team at the moment. We've seen them in the past have, you know, fantastic youngsters like uh, Renan Lodi, um, like 
Bruno Guimardes, um, really good young players coming through. This is more of a team that's based on, you know, a, a solid collective, you know, Thiago Elena at the back there, marshalling the troops with a few, you know, there's there's no big goal scorers in there. There's, there's everyone chips in and contributes. Um, and I think they're the type that, you you know, you might see in a in one of the groups of death, perhaps, of, of uh, you know, seeing... Paraguayan side thinking, yeah, we fancy our chances against this, and and then it being a very level, even playing playing field in, in one of those kind of groups where anyone can get through, but inevitably you could see them sneaking through. I don't think they're the type of team that's gonna team that's gonna progress beyond the round of sixteen, but certainly they're a side that I think could get through their group depending on the draw. But yeah, I'm I'm sure there'll be some teams hoping that they they maybe get them as uh, as even if not as the easiest opponents, at least it's kind of damage limitations on which Brazilian side you you might end up facing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look ahead to the 2022 Libertadores, obviously we, we now know a number of the teams that will be there. We've mentioned there a number of them already from Brazil. It's going to be nine, potentially nine Brazilian teams in the group stages. Two of them have to go through the qualifying rounds that begin in the end, well, the first round at the end of February, I think. Um, so a huge field potentially in the, the Libertadores, six Argentine clubs as well, provided one of them gets through there from the second stage of qualification. Um, so it's going to be a, a difficult test for, for anyone to, to lift the 2022 Libertadores, you feel. Um, but having spoken so much about Brazilian football in the context of those two finals, it leads us relatively nicely into a roundup of all of the drama that's been taking place over the last couple of weeks in South America, the end of the calendar year has meant the end of the footballing year as well in so many of these leagues. Um, so we can start off in Brazil where it's one of the teams that we spoke about quite a lot earlier in the Copa Libertadores. We were talking about the earlier stages at Let's Go Minero, who came out short in the Libertadores, but after 50 years have gone on and won the Brazilian league title um, a huge moment for them in the club, being able to get back 2022 Libertadores. They'll be right up there as one of the favourites again. I mean, Simon, we spoke about them in the context of the Libertadores, but certainly in the league, they've been absolutely sensational um, and thoroughly deserved champions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, so much attacking talent. I mean, there's there's names even the most casual soccer fan will be familiar with, the likes of Diego Costa, Hulk, the big Hulk up top, Jefferson Sabarino had a good Libertadores campaign, Zaracho. I mean, there's so much quality in this uh, Monero team, and it's a team that has been more attacking. We've spoken about Palmeiras' defensive discipline, but, but Minero in the Libertadores and in the Brazilian League have been uh, very, very effective in attack whilst keeping things tight at the back. They've scored 64 goals in 37 games uh, while conceding 30. So solid defensively, one of the best defences in the league, uh, the best attack in the league just behind Flamengo, which is a huge credit. They won the league um, with, a, with a decent amount of breathing spaces. One round of games still to go in Brazil as we record, but 13 points ahead. Fully deserved, uh, a team full of uh, a lot of quality. Um, and I think they're going to be real contenders for next year's Libertadores as well. You look at the, the, the class they have and bring in the likes of Diego Costa in to, to combine with Hulk. Give that another four or five months and it's going to be really interesting how well those, those two can pair off. Whether they can play them together will be something to, to, to see. But the attacking quality they have, um, they were completely dominant 
in the Brazilian league in the end. Obviously, Palmeiras, Flamengo were in, in with a shout and maybe distractions in the Libertadores kind of impacted upon them in the in the straight. But, you know, uh, they, won, they won the thing at Acanta. Excellent attack, solid in defence. Minero, for me, deserved uh, Brasileirão winners in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Diego Costa and Hulk there. Diego Costa, maybe we're still waiting for him to have the big impact at the club. He came in relatively late, but certainly the signing of Hulk, Tom, has, has been just a revelation, really. You, you always have that slight hesitation when players come back to South America, having had a career in Europe or elsewhere, of are they still going to have that motivation? But certainly, Minero bringing in Hulk has just taken that attack to another level. And his goals what we saw in the Libertadores earlier and certainly in the league as well, have really just given them that firepower. Yeah, he's been absolutely brilliant. Um, top scorer in the league and he, he's made a real difference. He's, you know, despite his his advancing years, he's he's kept himself in great nick and he's been that talisman that the league title um, was, was all built around. So I think, as you said, he is going to be um, a huge, huge um, player when it comes to the Libertadores next year. I think given that they've got that league title, the first one in 50 years, as you mentioned, um, out of the way, they're going to put even more of their eggs in the uh, in the Libertadores basket. And I, fi- I feel like they've got a really, really good chance of being right up there with the best of them. They've got a fantastic squad all over. And if they can keep that together, then I think um, they're going to be very, very difficult to beat and um, quite, a, quite an amazing way to, to sort of seal the title with that 3-2 win over Bahia as well, coming back from 2-0 to, to win 3-2. Um, I think that was just a perfect way to kind of seal that, um, that title. So, yeah, really impressed with them. And, um, yeah, they, they're going to be a very, very tough team to beat. Yeah, I mean, there's been a few other storylines, I guess, in Brazil before, before before we leave there that we should mention um, going into the Libertadores as well we should make mention of Fortaleza um, being one of the surprise stories um, in Brazil but um, Simon there's, there's also a massive story in the Brasileirão in terms of relegation yeah absolutely so in Brazil four teams get relegated which is uh, incredibly harsh uh, basically in Brazil you either qualify for continental competition or you get relegated it seems there's there's one or two uh, kind of in between but uh, obviously the big story is is Grêmio who are currently 18th um, uh, there's four teams going down 20 teams so they're third from bottom and this is one of the huge huge clubs an incredible stadium a team where we used to speaking about as Libertadores contenders uh, and they're down on 40 points um, with with one game to play in the Brasileirão um, against Atletico Mineiro. So it, it looks like by the time you hear this podcast, Gremio, the great Gremio full of superstars with the iconic blue, black and white shirts, may be playing in the Brazilian second division with, with a lot of very big clubs. You know, their the relegation is is very harsh in Brazil and there's a lot of very, very strong teams and uh, Gremio, one of the biggest clubs on the continent, may find themselves in the second division, which it looks very likely at this stage and it would be a huge story if uh, if that is the case. So when you're listening to this, quickly get on Google, check out what happened in, on Thursday and uh, it may be the case that Gremio is a second division team, which will be, will be remarkable. 
Yeah, I mean, it, as you say, it's a, it's a harsh relegation system in, in Brazil. Unlike in some of the other South American countries, we already see some of the big clubs like Cruzeiro outside the top flight. Um, Gremio joining them would still be big, big news. Um, just before we leave that then, Tom, I mean, on Gremio, and you look at some of the players that they still have at this t- in the squad, still something of a surprise to see them where they are. I mean, what do you think's gone wrong for Gremio? Why could they be heading out of Brazil's top flight? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say really because you always saw them as quite a well-managed club in terms of bringing through young players, selling them on for a good profit and then replacing them with, with decent players. You know, Artur left and then straight away they had um, Matias Henrique and, you know, we saw um, Everton come through there and, um, you know, Ferreira sort of stepping in as looking like the next guy to to do well and and I, I think even the even that sort of transfer business like bringing in campas I thought was a masterstroke but um something's I, th- I mean I think the fact that the manager left to go to Flamengo was was clearly I don't know if that was he you know he saw the writing on the wall and thought it's time to get out of there and it was just the end of a cycle but certainly I don't think that's helped as well because he was he was there for a good few years and and brought you know consistent sort of Libertadores semi-finals to the club. So it's all gone wrong spectacularly quickly. And I think there's just a, a multiple, you know, number of, of reasons. And it just, it then kind of snowballs and, um, and they were just in an absolute um, spiral and, and it doesn't look like they're going to get out of it. So I think there'll be a lot of teams having a look at the, uh, the players on, on offer there, because as we said, that there, there are some really fantastic prospects there. And um, yeah, you could see a bit of a, a fire sale if, if they go down. Be interesting to see who sticks around. Sometimes you get some of the legends coming back to the club and trying to haul them out of the second division. But as Cruzeiro have, have shown, as Vasco have shown, it's it's hard to get out. I mean, it only looks like out of the big clubs, Botafogo are, are going to be coming back up. So it's, it's not a given that they'll bounce back straight again. So um, yeah, very surprising. I don't think has, any of us would have seen this a year ago. And um, yeah, definitely a storyline to keep on, keep an eye on. We have that in Brazil, um, across the rest of the continent. Then in, in Argentina, we saw River Plate pick up the first league title of Marcelo Gallardo's era. Uh, a long wait for him, but thoroughly, thoroughly deserved. Anyone who's watched any Argentine football, I think domestically, certainly this season will no surprise to see that River Plate ended up as champions. Julian Alvarez, the, the standout player in the league, the standout young player in Argentina, certainly someone who in the upcoming European January transfer window, I think will be one to keep an eye on for a huge number of clubs, given his gettable release clause and the huge amount of money that it represents for Argentine clubs, regardless of the loss that he would be to River Plate. Um, and also the big storyline, of course, again, Marcelo Gallardo himself, because his contract is up at the end of the year. Um, and he's been very open about the fact that he's not going to reveal what he's going to be doing next until the season's done with. Argentina has one game left. River already crowned champions. So we're all just sitting around now waiting to see whether we will indeed have Marcelo Gallardo in 2022 at River Plate. But Simon, you look at River Plate as the standout team in Argentina. You were talking before about River 
Boca being the two traditional sides that you'd look at for the Libertadores as being the ones that maybe have a chance of competing with the Brazilian clubs. River look far more equipped to be able to do that at the moment, as you said. Boca have a lot of stuff they need to get in order. Um, but with that kind of uncertainty, um, that, that in itself could have a major impact on whether they are that competitive. If we would be looking at 2022 River, yes, with an influx of money, maybe, from selling Julian Alvarez, but also maybe minus Marcelo Gajal. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting, interesting uh, December, January for River. Um, we've we've become accustomed to a River that's very consistent in their approach. There have been tweaks over the years, and they've brought in new players. But it's a River that that, that uses the ball well, is very collective, is on the front foot, and again, Gajardo's done an incredible job. Um, they're a team that has a lot of these attacking. Uh, like dynamic attacking players, attacking midfielders, lots of interchanges. It's a really interesting river, but it's not a tactical approach we're very used to seeing in South America. So it's tricky to see the coach who comes in and kind of either continues this or adapts this. What will be the impact of, of adaption? Will other players leave if Gajado leaves? Is there going to be other players looking now to go, okay, I've I've done everything I can with this Riverside. Um, many of them will have um, won a Libertadores title and won the Argentine League. And that, Now, what else is there to do? We, we asked that question about Gajardo, but there's perhaps two or three other players in that squad who may be looking at this being the, the natural point to move on and maybe not work on a rebuild. Again, a rebuild maybe isn't the word, but there, there's going to be some change. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what that change involves. You guys are much closer than I am, but uh, it's a team that I've enjoyed watching in the Libertadores. Um, they've obviously finally made it work over a full Argentine league season as well. So it'll be interesting to see what comes next. Uh, maybe you guys could could inform me or give me an idea. Well, I think certainly in terms of being able to be the standout team domestically is probably helped by the fact that for the first time things in the Libertadores didn't go to plan because so often we've seen Gajardo's River focused so much on continental football on the Libertadores of which they've nearly always been there or thereabouts if not champions in the final and semi-finals this was the first year that wasn't the case and I think it did liberate them in a sense that they were then able to say okay well now we go for the league title unhindered by anything else and they had the motivation as well of maybe it's Marcelo Gajardo's final year, but either way, let's win the one thing that's missing um, from the trophy cabinet. So that that was certainly a, a benefit to going out of the Libertadores. But I think now the focus does go back on constructing a team that can go and compete with the Brazilian clubs in 2022. And that will be a big test. They just had their club elections at the weekend. The new president will obviously want to speak to Marcelo Gajardo and do everything possible to make him stay. Um, but Tom, do, do you see River's hopes in 2022 in terms of trying to get back to the top of the Copa Libertadores as being dependent on Marcelo Gajardo? Well, that's, uh, that's a, t- a tricky question that I'm not sure I've got the answer for. But <laughs> it's it's one of those things that you think, you know, this Riverside in its current form is so much better than the Riverside that went out to Atletico Mineiro. And even though Gajardo is now completed uh, Argentinian football, South American football, and and it would seem like a logical time to move on. At the same time, he's he's now actually got a team that I think could compete for the Libertadores. Obviously, if Alvarez goes, which feels likely, or you know maybe he'll give him another six months, you never know, um, that would be a big blow to this team because he's obviously the, um, the jewel in the crown at the moment. But there's a lot of other good players there you know, that he's brought through. Enzo Fernandez and Santi Simon have been fantastic. 
yes, Ponzio's going, but you know, he was always someone who was, you know, on on his last legs anyway. Um, you know, they've got Nico de la Cruz, they've got Brian Romero, Suarez, um, Carascal even coming coming into his own as well, and a really solid sort of central defense. Yes, I think probably the fullbacks could maybe need a bit of work and and everything there, but they're not too far off being a challenger for the Libertadores and, and certainly by a country mile, the the best chance Argentina have got for it. So you you, you never know. You might think, mm, okay, let's let's have one more crack at the Libertadores. You can see the temptation there to to maybe give it another go. And even if he does go, there's going to be some residual um, sort of organisation and DNA there that any new coach could could draw upon if they don't tamper too much. Um, or if they get a, a really high-class manager to come in and continue the good work that's um, been done by Gajardo and give it maybe an extra boost. So it's every, everything obviously is dependent on Gajardo because I think that would, as soon as he leaves, there's going to be a feeling around the club that, okay, that's the end of a glorious era. Um, but it doesn't have to be the end. It could, you know, he's left the club in fantastic shape. If If he were to go, it's not like he's, Left them in a, in a, he's milked the, the best, and it's all about him. He's he's got a great structure there, ready for another manager. Who's as long as they find someone who's in the same sort of ilk, then they can use that really really strong pl- platform with all those good youngsters coming through to 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 kick on and and continue the work, even if it's going to be nigh on impossible for any manager to to replicate what Gajardo's done. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a, a very difficult task for the new president, if indeed he leaves. Um, but we'll have to wait and see, just as a number of subjects still up in the air before the end of the year. Simon, we'll cross over to your home, Colombia. Um, now, obviously, <laughs> we'll get on to something which very much made the news. Um, but you can start off by talking about the top flight in Colombia. <laughs> Yeah, the top flight where nothing ever happens. That's um, at least we didn't notice. Uh, okay, so anyway, so the top flight. So Colombia has a playoff system, although it's the playoff system tends to change every year just to keep us on our toes. Um, it's not as complicated as a relegation system, but basically the top eight qualify for a playoff. Now that can be knockout or it can be group stages. Right now we have two groups of four teams. Um, the top team in each group goes on to the final. So it does make it very dramatic. We have a month month or so of must-win games. Every team plays each other uh, twice. So there's six games. Um, at the moment, we have... So Group A is topped by Deportivo Cali. Uh, Deportivo Cali is kind of built around Teofilo Gutierrez, who's moved from junior. A player I give stick in the Libertadores. I don't think he's quite as impactful as he could be in the Libertadores, but he still 100% does it in the Colombian League. And he's kind of playing as a as a number 10 with Harold Preciado, former Colombian international, um, and Angelo Rodriguez. It's, it's a really good side. So they're top of Group A, which is, is a very strong group with Junior in second, another team that's a, a very strong from Barranquilla. Atletico Nacional and Pereira at the bottom at the moment. But there's three games to go in, in, this, in this round. So there's time to turn it around, but with seven points, Cali are looking very strong in Group A. Group B, we have Tolima. Again, another side we're familiar with the Libertadores, a very uh, dangerous, a counter-attacking team, always good out wide, very energetic, 
They're top on seven points, but it's 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 close in this group. We've got Millonarios in second on four, America de Cali on three, Alianza Petrolera on three as well. Petrolera, the outsiders in that group, and I'd say Pereira, the outsiders in group A. But honestly, there's a lot of things that can happen. Three games, these teams are all playing each other, so every win means a huge amount. A draw is a dropped opportunity. If you can win the next three games, regardless of where you are in this table, you can probably still get through to the final. So it is very dramatic in Colombia. Um, it's Colombian attendances fluctuate massively depending how well the team is doing. So they like to try and keep things exciting and competitive and important. So that's why we have these playoffs and you can question it. You win the league by 10, 15 points and then you go into a playoff and finish eighth, which is obviously frustrating. But it definitely keeps things very, very exciting uh, and it's going to be an exciting three or three or four weeks as we run up to Christmas in the Colombian League. And you had a very exciting promotion uh, at the weekend as well. With, um, late drama, late goals, meaning a promotion for a club. Tell us about that, uh, Simon, because I'm sure a lot of people have seen the clips going around on social media. Okay, so the similar system to the top top flight and the second flight um, with two groups, Group A and Group B, um, with the team winning the group, getting promoted, and then also playing a, a, a final. So... Union Magdalena, a team with a lot of history, a team that goes back to the 1930s from uh, Santa Marta, um, that once was built around Hungarian World Cup winners. Great history uh, and a a very embarrassing present. So basically, they had to win against Llaneros, who were already eliminated, to win promotion to the top flight. Uh, Fortaleza were losing in Bogotá. So it, it meant that there was a chance for Union Magdalene to get promoted if they beat Llaneros. Um, they were losing 1-0. It was 94 minutes. They needed a win. Obviously, it's not going to happen. They get a goal from a set piece, kind of out of nowhere, went up the other end, and then and then <laughs> basically and basically Llaneros stopped playing. You know, I've seen comparisons to like when you're controller runs out of battery on FIFA and they just walk into the... It was like that. Literally, seven or eight defenders stood still. Um, The goalkeeper did try to win the ball back. I don't know if he'd received the memo, but he actually was trying, um, which looked even more ridiculous when everyone else was standing around. The striker was surprised that suddenly the defence had disappeared and ran into the goalkeeper, but managed to pull it back and then drag it back to the edge of the box where they scored. Now, obviously, this has been a huge source of embarrassment for Colombia. Um, there have been huge questions asked. Why did this team suddenly stop playing in such an important moment, um, which decided promotion? Um, I, I'm not suggesting that the, the fact that the president of, um, of Onya Magdalena is in prison for murdering his wife and many other suspected crimes is related. But the, the president of Colombia has said this is an embarrassment. Um, the... The club have said, we're proud of our promotion. What are you talking about? All you may say is trying to bring us down, which is a bold stance. Um, but it's become an international incident and a great source of embarrassment for Colombia. Whether it's uh, related, who knows what it's related to, but it's clear that Unia Magdalena, who needed a win, got a win because their opponents, Janero, stopped playing. So the president of the country's got involved. Uh, the Colombian FA said they're going to investigate. Uh, it would be remarkable if Unia Magdalena got promoted with nothing changing. 
But who knows? This is Colombia. But there's definitely a lot of pressure now to have some sort of resolution, although I have no idea what you do in this situation. Absolutely not. But it's certainly worth checking out if you haven't seen the video of the, the winning goal. It really is something to behold. Tom, it's not the only country where you've seen a lot of late drama over the weekend. Um, we'll start in Paraguay, I guess, where we had an absolutely sensational end to the season there. Yeah, you, I mean, again, it was all about late goals this, this weekend. These ones probably a little less dubious. Um, but um, yeah, it was a fantastic. I mean, you couldn't have scripted a better showdown for the final of the Paraguayan League. You had Cerro Porteño against Guarani, first and second in the league. Winner takes all effectively um, at, the, at the top of the table there. And Cerro got off to a pretty bad start. They got a, a straight red after 15 minutes, which immediately um, yeah made their task a little bit difficult. Guarani went 2-0 up um, and was still winning at 90 minutes. So you kind of thought, okay, Guarani have won the title. Great achievement for, you know, probably the, the underdog of the two teams there, although they've got a lot of history. Um, but then Guarani... Well, their goalkeeper, Gaspar Serbio, um, who, if you've watched the Maradona in Sinaloa uh, series, he was the he was the goalkeeper there for, for Maradona's team. He got a red card. He's the captain of the team and just absolutely lost his head. Their centre-back then got um, a red card. So suddenly, Guarani are down to nine men. And then, yeah, Serbio scored two goals, one in the 99th minute, one in the 101st minute of the game. Um, with Patino getting the equaliser in, in very dramatic fashion there um, and securing the title. I mean, he also got a red card um, as well, just to even things up and make it um, nine nine apiece in terms of the people still on the pitch. But yeah, absolutely crazy scenes. Um, yeah, there's there's just no way to describe what um, what was going on with Guarani in in those final minutes there, and and great as well to see Chiquiarse get his I think third title with Cerro, um, which um, is I think he's the first manager first Cerro manager to do that. Obviously, he's had quite a difficult year or so as well, so you can't really um, begrudge him that. But yeah, amazing drama, um, pulling it right out of the bag at the last minute, and um, yeah, there was definitely the the theme of uh, this weekend just gone. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'll stay with you, Tom, just to to link into that next champions ground in, in dramatic circumstances in Uruguay, um, where Peñarol picked up the title, but again, by no means made it easy for themselves. Yeah, they uh, they really left it late again as well. They were they were drawing one all against uh, Sudamerica, um, small team there in in Uruguay. And then, yeah, two injury uh, time goals from Jesus Trindad. Um, not someone who scores a lot of goals, sort of more of a combative defensive midfielder, really. Um, but yeah, certainly the second one was an absolute zinger from long range as well. So he, he picked a good moment to, to score there. Um, and then, yeah, they managed to win 3-1 and, and secure the title. Well, the, um, obviously, just the the short season title there. They they now play Plaza Colonia, um, another small team who who won the Apertura um, in a sort of championship playoff. Um, they are 1.884 with Pinnacle to, to win that game. So they're the big favourites. And after the great run they had in the Sudamericana as well, you, you wouldn't put it past uh, Peñarol becoming the overall champions of um, of Uruguay. But certainly there's um, there's going to be some some drama um, there as well. And, and a quick word as well to to Albion and Danubio who, who are coming up from the second division. And it looks like they're going to be joined by Defensor Sporting as well 
who were three nil up in their first leg of the of the playoff final to come back up. So two huge historic teams coming back up at the first time of asking. Yeah, Peñarol and Champions of the Weekend, uh, another club as well. When we think about some young players in South America that, that we've spoken about when we were talking about the Sudamericana earlier, Augustin Alvarez Martinez, particularly um, one of those young players at Peñarol who's been sensational this year and probably will have clubs looking at him again in January, you'd imagine. Um, Simon will cross back to talk about Venezuela, Venezuela, uh, or any other leagues in the north of the, the continent? Yeah, one of one of our neighbours up here in Colombia. Um, so the Venezuelan system is a bit different as well. The league split into two, and they're having a playoff for the Sudamericana in the second league. Uh, and the top league is going to decide the champions as well as the Libertadores places. So we've got to our final, which will be held on Saturday, the 11th of December. We've got Caracas FC, one of the great traditional clubs of Venezuela, up against Deportivo Táchira. Uh, two good sides. I think these two, te- two teams should be fairly competitive in next year's Libertadores. Uh, Caracas actually have a an African striker who came over this year to play uh, continental football and has done really, really well. The 21-year-old Akinola. Uh, I think he's around available for around $1, $2 million. I think he might be making a big move. He's really good. He's been top scorer in the league. He's been very impressive. And it's an interesting move to go from... Well, from Africa, from Benin to Slovakia to Venezuela. But I think his next move might be a more high-profile one. So they're in the final um, against Deportivo Táchira. Táchira have a couple of good players. Chacón is a really good young winger, one to watch. As well as Freddy Gondola, who was impressive in the Libertadores this year. Scored three or four goals as well in the group stage. Uh, he's from Panama, Panamanian International. So there's some good players on both sides. It should be an interesting final. Uh, you can check out on Saturday to decide the Venezuelan champions. Yes, and finally, we won't have time probably to go through everything because otherwise this would be going on forever. But we certainly do need to mention Chile. Uh, Tom, we saw for the fourth straight year, Universidad Católica crown champions. We saw drama at the other end of the table as well. Uh, a fantastic final day in Chile. Yeah, really, really good um, games at, at both ends of the table where they're with some of the biggest clubs involved. Obviously, Católica have been great. Um, they've got so many good players there to watch. You know, you've got Núñez, Montes, Saavedra, all really good young players, that kind of next generation of uh, Chilean footballers who are, are coming through and, and, you know, finally looking to rejuvenate the national team. Um, Zampedri up front as well has been on fire for... Um, for Católica, um, obviously lots of Argentinian football fans will will know him well as well. So yeah, Colo Colo pushed them all the way. But um, once again, I think Católica by far and away the best team, um, but for my money at least anyway, in Chile. But it was, yeah, the other end where the real drama was because uh, Universidad de Chile, um, another one of the biggest clubs uh, in the in the country, were in the relegation zone, but they saved themselves on the final day. I mean, there was talk about them trying to maybe um, get uh, get themselves saved by maybe under the table means by sort of calling out other uh, teams who maybe not registered players and things like that. But in the end, they managed to do it on their own terms. Um, again, 2-0 down going into the 84th minute and then managed to win 3-2 against Union La Calera, team that were in the Libertadores this year, just gone again with two goals in injury time. Again, it's crazy how many of these leagues 
seem to be defined by the latest goals imaginable, you know, Paraguay, Colombian second division, um, Chile as well. You know, it's, you can't write this stuff and that's why football is so good, especially this crunch end of the season in South America. And, and you know that the fans just go absolutely nuts for it as well. So yeah, they've managed to save themselves. I don't think they're necessarily in a great state um, and they're not going to be up there challenging for titles. Like, you know, when we saw them with San Paoli, that amazing uh, Universidad de Chile side, um, because they've been flirting with relegation for a couple of years now, but yeah, amazing drama. And again, I think always, always worth anyone who's interested in that, having a look at those, those dramatic matches because yeah, the scenes on the pitch and off the pitch are, are, are pretty uh, astounding. Yeah, a wonderful end to 2021 in Chile and, and as we already covered a lot of other leagues in, in South America. Um, Simon, as ever, huge thank you uh, to you for your insight. Um, hope you had a wonderful 2021 and hopefully we'll return uh, next year with a bit more of these yeah hope so uh, i've enjoyed it there's lots of gonna be lots of drama lots of transfer news lots of build up as we begin the libertadores qualifying campaign there's going to be massive international games coming up which are increasingly important and tense you guys down there in argentina can relax now feet up going off to the world cup uh, up here in colombia we're still sweating and checking the the, the latest news on the playoffs so so we have to see how things go up here so plenty of football to discuss in 2022 and hopefully we can continue to bring that to, to everyone here on pinnacle yeah, and, and the same to you, Tom, as well. Thanks very much for uh, for everything that you provided in the podcast over these four episodes of 2021. Cheers. Thank you, Peter. And, and thanks for, for hosting and guiding us through these always stormy and sometimes controversial waters of, of South American football. If, uh, if 2022 can live up to, to this year, then I think we'll have plenty to talk about next year as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we, as Simon said there, we have the World Cup qualifiers as well, relatively quickly into 2022, as well as obviously the starting of the seasons across the continent, um, as well as very quickly the qualifying rounds for the Copa Libertadores. So we'll be kept busy. Um, thank you very much if you've uh, been listening today uh, and to any of the episodes that we recorded in the second half of 2021. Hopefully we will return in 2022 to continue talking about all of those subjects. Um and uh, yeah, we'll be back very soon. Uh, remember, you can find all the latest odds and better insight on pinnacle.com, plus plenty of content on the Pinnacle Twitter at Pinnacle and the Instagram pinnacle.betting with plenty of other sports coming your way. Please gamble responsibly. Odds that were mentioned during this episode are correct at the time of recording, so make sure you go check on pinnacle.com 